Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to In Town. It's great to have you in worship with us, and Happy New Year. If you're visiting with us, we have just concluded a study during Advent of uh, the book of Zechariah, and this morning is the Epiphany Sunday, and we're going to look at um, Isaiah chapter 9. And if you are interested, we'll be restarting our uh, Ephesians study next week uh, with chapter 5, which includes Paul's uh, much-discussed passage on submission and marriage. So if you want to come back and see me sweat through a sermon, uh, you're welcome. It should be great fun. I may end up offending everyone in the room. Uh, But this is our Old Testament reading this morning from Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish, accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we are a community of people coming from many different directions, many different stories. Some of us grew up in the church, and we've never known a time where we've been uh, distant from your community. Some of us are here wondering if we could re-enter the community of faith, if we could reclaim again that which we used to believe. Others are here, and we're on the verge of belief, and we're wondering what it would be like, what it would mean for our lives for us to come into the church, to be baptized, to take on a new identity. Still others are here and simply investigating, wondering what Christianity is all about. Lord, wherever we find ourselves this morning, whatever our story is, I pray that this ancient text would be made relevant, that the gospel would meet us all where we are. For the gospel we believe in this church is not only relevant to each person, but it is the exact thing, the primary thing that we need, that we need hope, that we need you to reach out to us in our desperate state and give us new life. So, Father, I pray that as we celebrate Epiphany, as we interact with this text this morning, that you would do just that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The Chilean writer Isabel Allende gave a a TED Talk a few years ago called Tales of Passion, and it's 
had millions of views uh, online. And she says this, I want to make this world good, not better, but to make it good. Why not? It's possible. Let's get off our fannies, roll up our sleeves, and get to work passionately in creating an almost perfect world. Now, it's not that hard to find this sort of optimism around the holidays and around New Year's Eve particularly. And it's not hard to find this sort of optimism sometimes in platitudes attached even to Christmas cards. It's as if Jesus was born in the manger with the with we are the world playing in the background. That's what's represented in many of these cards. And nothing is wrong with this sort of hopefulness, but it is becoming more and more atypical. After two world wars, after countless genocides and atrocities, this type of hope of salvation coming from within our system is becoming more and more rare. Bob Dylan, who sang uh, as a part of the We Are the World concert or song, said he felt strange singing these lyrics because he was convinced that mankind cannot possibly save itself. This is why what we're celebrating, what we've been celebrating at Advent and Christmas and now Epiphany is so relevant and still so stirring because we live in a very cynical age. We live in an age that's lost hope and salvation that emerges, that springs up from within. Now, maybe you can pass it off as one more peace movement that's over-promised and under-delivered, but you surely can't pass over the Christmas story. You can't pass over this story of Gentile pagan magi, kings from the east, coming to worship at the foot of this child king whom was said of him that he was God incarnate. Maybe you can pass it off as a fairy tale, but you can't pass over it. You have to at least consider because it's something that is very different from every other story and every other movement. It's utterly different. Now, this is a a homily, not a a full sermon, and so we're going to meditate just really on one particular verse, and that's part verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Notice that the light dawns upon them. The light comes upon them. It's not a light that anyone is looking for. It's not a light that is uncovered by rational inquiry or scientific exploration. It's a light that dawns on them. It's not developed, it's discovered. It's an epiphany, if you will. Richard Rohr, I quoted in your bulletin, he's a Catholic writer, says, an epiphany is not an experience that we can create from within, but one that we can only be open to and receive from another. Epiphanies leave us totally out of control, and they always demand that we change. We would rather, of course, have objectified religion, which leaves us potentially in control and never having to change at all. Religion without epiphanies becomes digging in your heels, but religion with epiphanies becomes living on your heels, ready to go wherever God manifests. One wonders if the three kings ever went back home at all, home base had been taken from them. 
Epiphany recognizes and celebrates that these three kings, these magi, these Gentile wise men who travel vast distances to come and bow down in worship before this child king born in Bethlehem. Now, Isaiah, who is writing our passage, is writing maybe 600 years before this event. And he's looking for a child king who would come and rescue them out of their situation. But if you notice, as we began reading the passage, there's this very emphatic, nevertheless, which would cause us to say, nevertheless, what? What came immediately before? We have to look at chapter 8. Now, Isaiah is writing to a group of people, to the Israelites, whose home base had literally been taken from them, that they have been exiled, they're oppressed, they're hurting, they're crushed politically, socially, spiritually, and they're looking for help everywhere. God's people are going to visit mediums and spiritists and even trying to commune with the dead to find answers for their situation, to find hope for this quagmire that they're in. They're distressed and hungry. It says they're even enraged and angry with God. And they look towards the earth, and they see distress and fearful gloom and darkness. Nevertheless, there's darkness, but there's nevertheless. The message of the text, the message of Christmas, aren't you tired of everyone telling you what the message of Christmas is? And here I go again. We've had countless movies Countless Christmas cards, countless commercials purporting to tell us the true meaning of Christmas. But part of the meaning of Christmas, part of the true message of Christmas, an epiphany, is that the world is a very dark place, that the world can't save itself. We have this unparalleled hope, but we also have to see, we have to start with this incredible darkness. The nevertheless doesn't make any sense at all without understanding the darkness, without a recognition of a need for salvation. If an epiphany is to make any sense at all, if it's to matter in any way, there has to be some recognition of a lack or a void in which that epiphany comes. Now, the original readers, the people that Isaiah is addressing, had this in spades. They had this great lack, this great sense of desperation that this epiphany comes into. And it begs the question, how do we see our situation? How do we see our individual lives? Do we see ourselves as sort of a a fixer-upper with lots of potential, with great curb appeal? Maybe there's a, a leaky roof. Maybe the windows are kind of leaky and needing adjustment. Maybe the molding is a little cracked and we need to redo it. But, but basically... We're a fixer-upper. We can work on our curb appeal. There's nothing wrong with us that a few strategic New Year's resolutions won't fix. Or conversely, do we feel like Walker Percy's books, that we're lost in the cosmos, that we have this sense of a real cosmic, psychological, social, spiritual dislocation, that there's something very wrong with our world And that we inhabit that world as broken people. That we feel overmatched in some way by our world and even by our own sense of fallenness and sinfulness. I read this week of a town in mid 
uh, in the middle part of Norway, which is very high latitudes. And it sits down in a valley. It's about 3,000 people. And because the, the mountains are basically come down right beside the two sides, north and south, the winter sun never rises high enough for the, the sun to shine down on this town. And so for six months of the year, they have no direct sunlight. And so we Portlanders probably shouldn't whine too much about our situation. But they decided to do something about theirs, that the sun was something that they actually need, needed for a, a vibrant life. And so they marched way up on this hill, 450 meters, and clear-cut some, some of the trees there. And they installed these huge mirrors that directed the sunlight, mobily directed the sunlight down upon the town during the winter. So even when the sun only rises to this very low degree, they have sunlight. The sun has come upon them. The people living in the land of darkness have seen a great light. This light has dawned upon them. And it dawned upon them because they had the right orientation to see it. It dawned upon them because they had the right mirrors. Epiphany in many, way, in many ways is like a mirror. It tells us that we need the light, that we're not self-sufficient, that there's a darkness in our lives that we need to address. But God doesn't stand far off until we get our act together, until we deal with the darkness on our own. He enters into the system. He enters into our darkness with his majestic, his powerful, his gracious, nevertheless. Nevertheless, those walking in darkness have seen a great light. Christmas often brings out the best in people and encourages cooperation and goodwill towards other people, but Christmas is also very insulting. It's very harsh in its assessment of who we are as human beings. Because what does it say? It says that our need was so great, our sin so deep, that God himself had to enter into the system to bring salvation, to bring light into the world, that he had to enter into the system to forcibly illuminate the way to salvation. Ross Duthat is a, also a Catholic writer. He's an op-ed writer for the New York Times, and he, reflecting on this, is, uh, this truth about Christianity, says the question is whether nature actually deserves a religious response. Traditional theism has to wrestle with the problem of evil. If God is good, why does he allow suffering and death? But nature is suffering and death. Its harmonies require violence. Its circle of life is really a cycle of mortality. And the human societies that hold closest to the natural order aren't the shining Edens of James Cameron's fond imaginings. They are places where existence tends to be nasty, brutish and short. Religion exists in part precisely because humans aren't at home amid these cruel rhythms. We stand half inside the natural world and half outside of it. We're beasts with self-consciousness, predators with ethics, moral creatures who yearn for immortality. This is an agonized position, and, there is, and if there's no escape upward, or no God to take on flesh and come among us as the Christmas story has it, it is a deeply 
tragic one. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany brings this unparalleled hope, but we have to deal first with darkness. Jesus is a light. He is a star. He is bright because the world is a very dark place. And Jesus' salvation that he comes and offers to all, it only makes sense to those who think they need it. His bread is only filling to those of us who are hungry. If the epiphany is a fairy tale, if it's just a story that someone made up, if the kings came to worship, were just delusional, then we're stuck. We better get all the pleasure, all the comfort, all the attention that we can because most of us have about 75 years. And then humanity will die the death of the universe. But don't we realize that these things, chasing after these things, are not the basis for a healthy, whole, happy life? That if these things are the basis for seeing us through the darkness or keeping the darkness at bay, and then we lose them, then we're through. We're done for. We live one bad diagnosis, one pink slip, one disfiguring accident away from losing it all. Chapter 8 says, They looked to the earth and saw distress and fearful gloom. But if Epiphany's not a fairy tale, it's not a story that just someone made up, if Epiphany actually is God becoming human, God coming to earth to bring salvation, if those kings were right, then a light has indeed dawned. A light has come upon us. There is reason for hope, for real hope. Not sentimentality, not just optimism, but real, firm hope for ourselves and for the person next to us, for our broken family, for our job that just doesn't ever seem to, to amount to anything, for our friends and family, for our future. There is something outside the system that not only has entered in, but knows your name and cares for you. That God himself took up residency in our world to live and eventually die to rescue us from our contentedness with darkness, from our consistently going back to darkness and thinking that this is enough. It means that there's no one without hope. It means there's no place that is not ripe for God's redemption. Christmas Epiphany is indeed realistic about the state of the world, that it's worse than our best efforts can solve, that things are indeed bad, but there's a nevertheless. There's a nevertheless to the chaos. There is hope in the midst of despair that things don't always have to be this way. This very famous passage embedded in the middle of our text, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne forever, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's nothing short of cosmic redemption, cosmic revolution. But it begins with individuals like you and me owning up to our place in the darkness, our own owning the darkness, that we have in our hearts a large piece of that darkness, and therefore we need the light of Jesus. It begins, this cosmic renovation begins with you and I saying, yes, I need salvation. And it puts us in the most uncomfortable place that we could possibly bear. Because at the very end, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, which means that we have to give up our self-salvation strategies. We have to give up, give up all of the ways that we try to add up the good works that we can possibly do so that we can get the attention of God, that we can wrestle his affection from his hands. It's not that at all. Unto us a son is given, and it is his zeal, it is his interest, it is his power that will accomplish your salvation, my salvation, the salvation of the world. We give up our self-salvation strategies and take hold of Jesus. And it's astounding that we serve, that we follow, that we're investigating, that we're coming in contact with the most vulnerable God that anyone could imagine, that he actually humbles himself before us, that he submits himself to our need, that if you were there when those wise men walked into wherever he was at that time, he was a couple of years after being born, he walked into the room where Jesus was, that they could have touched Jesus, they could have cradled Jesus, they could have held God in their arms. And then we are invited, these many centuries later, to take hold of him, not in the same exact way, but knowing that Jesus was a baby, that God became flesh. And as we come to the table, we're invited to take hold of him again through these elements that represent the fact that God was made body and blood on your behalf and on mine. Let's take hold of him now as we pray together. Father, I pray that you would draw us to you, that you would draw us out of our self-deception. You would draw us out of the darkness that sometimes we hate and sometimes we love. Sometimes we want to run from it and sometimes we want to guard it. Lord, save us from ourselves. Feed us on the goodness and the newness of the gospel, the goodness and the newness that comes with knowing that you were born in a stable for us. Let us worship you just as those pagan Gentile travelers did many years ago. Let us bow down, bringing our whole selves to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.